morning. How's it going? <laughs> Good. Yeah, some people answered. Great. Awesome. Uh, I think I know everyone here mostly. I'm Robert, uh, part of the community, get an opportunity to preach here and there. Uh, for those who know me and have seen me preach a few times, it's already been noted that I have downgraded from the downgradable chucks to flip-flops while preaching. Um, I'm aware. I would like to note that I saw a billboard this week that said you can wear flip-flops to church, and I had a very Jake and Elwood blues moment of seeing the light um, and decided that I wanted to try that. So that is my justification for it, I think. We'll see. So welcome. Uh, glad to be with y'all uh, this morning. Uh, so um, I'm actually okay if you do your communication cards while I'm preaching because I'm just going to assume you're taking awesome notes about something deep that has been revealed to you through this moment, um, even though I assume it will probably just be uh, drawings like my kids do on the back of them. However, years ago I was preaching, and no matter what, you'll never beat the fact that I, I was reading the scripture off my phone, didn't realize I still had alerts on, the sound was off, and someone in the community replied to an email that came up while I was preaching. <laughs> and so, so whatever, you're not going to go there, hopefully. Um, but we'll find out after I'm done with this. Uh, so we've been walking through the book of Esther. Um, just a refresher um, for those who are visiting. Uh, we go through books from beginning to end um, of uh, the book when we go through them. And so that's what we're doing with the book of Esther. Uh, we're on chapter 3 uh, this morning within that. And one of the things before I get into this, because as you go through a book like Esther, there's a lot of text that gets read um, when we break it up chapter by chapter. And there's going to be another moment this morning that a large portion of text gets read, um, and myself included. If y'all aren't this way, uh, great. But we've been really formed lately uh, over the last handful of years in a very TED Talk-esque society of like compound quick. Even when you read articles online, before you click on it, it tells you this is a two-minute read or a three-minute read or a four-minute read. And I feel like we've even gotten to a point where if it says five minute, we're like, ah, we're done. That's, you know, <laughs> that, that's too long. So I just want to encourage y'all as we keep going through this series to engage it, to uh, press into the, okay, we got a couple more verses um, here. Um, and I'm saying that because I've had to learn that for myself as well and be reconditioned into that. So um, just a heads up. Uh, for y'all. So uh, Esther, um, we're going to be getting into chapter 3, but just a little review before we start and read Esther 3. Um, so we, like I said, we're doing this chapter by chapter through the book of Esther through summer. Uh, last week we were in Esther 2. Uh, a couple of just things to have in the forefront of your mind as we go into this. Uh, we are introduced to um, the king's search for a new queen. Uh, the character of Esther and Mordecai uh, are introduced, and both of these characters experience major happenings. Uh, the two biggest things is Esther becoming queen and uh, Mordecai discovering and foiling a plot uh, to kill the king. And these next um, verses happen on the heels of these events. And so I'm going to read Esther 3, uh, pray for us, and then we will dive into um, our message for this morning. So Esther chapter 3. After these things, King Herius promoted Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he had told them that he was a Jew. 
And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So as they had made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Hesarius. In the first month, which the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Hesarius, they cast pur, that is, they cast lots, before Haman day after day, and they cast it month after month, till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Hesarius, There is certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples and all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. If it pleases the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay 10,000 talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may be put into the king's treasures. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given to you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the thirteenth day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's uh, satraps and the governors over the provinces, and to the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script, and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Hesarius and sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instructions to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate all the Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, in which in the month of Adar, and to plunder the Gerg goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province by proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel, and the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. Let's pray. Our Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to go through this book, um, to explore, to ask questions, to wonder uh, what you're up to through this story, especially here through uh, Mordecai, through Haman, through the king's orders. Uh, be with us in this time as we explore that, as we gather together as a community um, to learn and share and pray and worship together. Let's not take that for granted as we gather here this morning. Uh, And anything that's helpful here of you on praise sticks, if it's not, it'd fall away. In your name, amen. So a very easy text to decipher and figure out, great, yeah, God's doing a lot of cool things here. Um, Awesome, encouraging. Uh, So we're going to, I want to break down uh, a couple of key pieces of this and look at at some dynamics of this text and then dive into a couple other areas of scripture that we're pointing to throughout this. And so Esther 3 begins right away with after these things. And so as you hear something like this in scripture, you should be automatically brought back to what just happened. It seems like a pretty direct thing. Okay, so after these things, after these things just happened, this is what's going on. And so as we reviewed briefly at the beginning, uh, this should immediately draw us back to the close of chapter 2, which closes with, In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, uh, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Saharius. 
and this time uh, to the knowledge of Mordecai. And he told it to Queen Esther, and Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, the men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. So after these things, that is how chapter 2 wraps up, and we go into 3. So after these events, uh, this is what takes place. Mordecai uh, foils a plot against the king's life. It is recorded in the king's book in the presence of the king. And so if you're a reader, um, you're probably thinking that we're going to head into a big chapter that praises Mordecai, and Mordecai gets all the things, and Mordecai is awesome, and that is not what we just read at all. (laughs) Um, So instead of full of praise and opportunity for the character of Mordecai, instead of maybe even a place of honor within the king's palace, uh, this could not be further from the case of what we experienced in the chapter that we just read in chapter 3. Instead, we are introduced to uh, a character named Haman the Agagite, whose name and throne is set above all others by the power of the king. Uh, The king has given Haman complete um, authority and power and complete honor uh, within his name uh, and has provided him a throne above all thrones. And with his honor, it's expected, as you come across Haman and Haman comes across you, that all in his presence would bow and pay homage. Uh, But Mordecai refuses to do so, uh, as we see in what we just read. He refuses to do such a thing. And now it's unclear if Haman actually notices that the first time, but then it's brought to his attention. Like, hey, this guy is not bowing down to you. And so what Haman experiences when he learns that and then actually sees it for himself, he is enraged. Uh, Not only at Mordecai's action, but then in this revelation that Mordecai is a Jew. So Haman takes the next obvious step and doesn't just want to retaliate towards Mordecai, but sets in motion a complete elimination of Mordecai's people. Um, Seems very clear-cut just for one person not wanting to bow down for you. And so, as we see in chapter 3, Haman approaches the king uh, with a plan. He talks to the king through coercion and manipulation about the way that he speaks of the people scattered through the land uh, and describes what is taking place. And so, We've gone from this, this after these things, after these things happen, after the, after the events of Mordecai, after what he did was literally written in the book of the king, in the presence of the king, uh, Haman's able to talk to him about uh, this person, this people, um, very briefly but yet direct in a way that says, hey, <laughs> all right, we need to set forth this whole proclamation of genocide, um, which needs to be swiftly carried out throughout the region and the city. As the text says, the town is thrown into confusion. So we see that. We're like, hey, what is the opportunity to get to God here in this proclamation of genocide of a person and a people who have done actually nothing wrong? Uh, So we're trying to figure that out. On a casual look or read, it may seem tempting just to want to be, keep reading. Like, what's going to happen? Okay, this is just setting us up to keep reading. There's nothing to stop here and see. Um, we have to keep reading to make it all sense. But there's a variety of signposts in this text that point us not only to what God is up to here, but also to the deep evil that's being played out by Haman. And so for our time together, I, w- I really actually want us to center on those signposts, to see this links of God's overarching story told through this narrative of Scripture. Um, as we are often talking about at Center Church, just seeing God's larger story play out through each, pers- each piece of the story to be able to enrich it and make it deeper and see what God is up to. And so for that, I want to start with actually our character here, uh, Haman the Agagite, about what is it that right there we should stop and be like, okay, who is this guy? 
was an agagite, and unfortunately we have to keep focusing on it, not for y'all to be able to laugh at my continued pronunciation issues that will change multiple times throughout reading the scripture, um, but because it's important. Um, oftentimes, especially in the Hebrew scriptures, when we see a name or a lineage, we just want to keep skipping. We just want to keep going. But if you keep going back, they add so much to what it is to understanding of the text. And so with Haman, it's not just another opportunity to be like, okay, that's a name, that's a place, but it's an opportunity to wonder what an Agagite is and why it is important to understand what is being communicated in his conflict between Haman, Mordecai, and the Jewish people. And so the connection is going to bring us to one more longer selection of scripture. I promise this is the last longer selection of scripture throughout our time together this morning. But I kept trying to, do I just do a summation of it or do I read it? But there's so much packed into this to understand what's going on all this time later uh, between what Mordecai represents and what Haman the Agagite represents. And so um, there's a couple of scriptures we're pointing to. But first, I want to go back to 1 Samuel 15. I'm just going to read this straight through for y'all. And so I encourage y'all to listen and pick up on what is going on here. And so 1 Samuel 15. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you, king over his people Israel. And now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike down Amalek and devote to the destruction all they have. Do not spare them, but kill them, both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them in Teliam, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from among the Amalekites. And Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry, and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgog. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from the Amicalites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen the sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said uh, to me this night, and he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Through you are little in your own eyes, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote destruction to the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what is evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. 
I brought Agag the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil and the sheep and the oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as a great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices, as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat, than the fat of rams. For rebellion is the sin of uh, divination, and presumption is an iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned, for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord in your words, because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me, that I may bow down before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to the neighbor of yours, who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. Then he said, I have sinned, yet honor me from before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. Then Samuel said, bring, me, bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amicalites. And Agag came, from here, came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgag. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gebet of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. All right, if you're still with me after all of that, um, I felt like it was important to read and go through because what we see here is this reality that now we're here in the book of Esther 2 with Mordecai coming up against Haman the Agagite, which is a direct descendant here of King Agag. And so when we hear this idea of this story of seeing what Mordecai is representing and seeing Haman the Agagite in this battle that is ongoing and has been ongoing through God's story, it should chime us in to see, okay, what is happening here? What's going to happen? How has God um, continued to be present within this story? And so we see this deep history here of understanding the people of Mordecai and the people of Haman the Agagite that are connected throughout God's story. And so when we hear Haman the Agagite, we shouldn't just stop and be like, okay, let's just keep going. But we should be pulled back and to see, okay, we don't know what's going on in here in Esther 2. We don't know how this is going to play out. But God has continued to lay the foundation of his story throughout Scripture and between the people that are representing this ongoing evil that Haman is a picture of against the people of God and how God has continued to make straits. And so this isn't just a little feud that is happening. You can see that this actually led all the way to Saul losing the throne, to um, Samuel lamenting and regretting that, and God's, uh, God's feelings towards, uh, towards this relationship with the people. And it keeps going. Um, throughout scripture as well. And so if we keep going back in scripture to understand this role, um, throughout 1 Samuel, we kept hearing of these people, the Amicalites, um, which Agag is their king. Again, Agag being, uh, Haman the Agagite being a descendant of King Agag. So we see that not only in this individual story here with uh, Saul and Samuel, but we hear that God also has a larger story with the people, the Amicalites, which in um, Exodus we hear more about. And so 
Not only do we have this relationship between Haman the Agagite and King Agag, which connects to God's larger story with Samuel and Saul, we also, if we keep going back to the book of Exodus, in Exodus 17, 14 through 16, we hear about God and the Amicalites and what he has planned for them throughout their history. And so Exodus reads like this, Exodus 17, 14 through 16. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in the book and recite it in the ears of Joshua, that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called it the name of the Lord is my banner, saying, a hand upon the throne of the Lord, the Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. And so when we take time to see this, it helps us see that the story that's getting in played out in Esther 3 isn't just a standalone story. It's not just a standalone story even in the book of Esther, but it's connected throughout stories throughout scripture. And so when we see that, we should be brought into God's ongoing story that roots the readers not only in God's promises and work that has been but is being done. And so when we see something like, okay, Mordecai foils this plot, um, he should be rewarded, should be, and then we transition right to a next chapter where none of this is happening. <laughs> uh, we might be thinking like, okay, what is God up to? What is going on? What is happening? This has to happen. But instead of turning the page, continuing on in Esther to find out, okay, what happens? Let's get to the good part, how that is. We should be reminded that God is not unaware of what's going on. Um, that God is not unaware of his promises to God's people. That God is not unaware that even though the circumstances look horrendous right now, even though the circumstances look unfair right now, look unjust right now, God has not forgotten the promises to his people. God just didn't work then in these earlier books with these relationships. God is continuing to work now. And so each opportunity as we go through this story, as we go through this book, is an opportunity to be looking for these signposts that are continuous not only to point us to God's larger story, but to remember us, to root us in the heaviness of what we are experiencing, to recognize that we might not see a way out of this chapter. We don't know what the way out right now is for Mordecai and the Jewish people, but we should be able in those moments, whether this is as we're looking at the people of scripture that are experiencing this, or as we're looking at our own life, recognizing the way that God has sustained and promised throughout that. And so that doesn't mean it's always going to be roses and flowers, but it's going to be in these dark, lonely times um, in a collective reality that we need to be able to look for these. And Esther, too, is a great example of that, to be rooted in this unknown where a flat-out genocide is being proclaimed throughout a people and being like, okay, wait, what do we cling to in this moment? Esther, too, is full of things for us to be reminded of and cling to. There's one last signpost I want to look at before we um, make a few other comments and um, keep going with our, with our time looking at Esther 2. And the last signpost of that comes here at the end of Esther, in Esther chapter 3. And so as we talked about when we read it, um, the, uh, uh, Haman was able to convince the king to send out his orders, to sign the orders with his ring, to have him swiftly translated in multiple languages, to have him curried throughout. And this is before mass email, right? Like, so this is, takes effort, this takes time, this takes a lot of people to make this happen. And at least for its time, it happened swiftly. And so where did that, um, where did that proclamation for destruction and death end up? So Esther 3.13 tells us that letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate. And one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. Now, obviously, a lot of y'all probably grew up in context 
where we can get overzealous and overexcited about dates and numbers and ideas. Um, and so a lot of me is very wary anytime that we do that, right? It's like we went through, uh, Kevin took us through the whole book of Revelation, and there was a lot of good warning encounter about uh, especially our subculture um, within our um, within our country uh, it can have a lot of history, especially in the modern era of it, with being able to do this. And so that's not what's being done here. Um, so within the Hebrew scriptures especially, it can be really important to be like, okay, where does this fall into the calendar of the people of God? Where does this remember? And so um, it's striking here, even though the author doesn't make sure to note it, which is also actually in itself a reminder to us that these things are important to pay attention to. So if people are hearing this, um, if it is being proclaimed to them, or if there's someone who is able to read this, um, they would be able to realize, like, oh, that's a very important time in the life of the people of God. And so it's a reminder to us, like, a lot of things that we just take for granted or assume to be like, actually, no, let's wake up and pay attention, <laughs> pay attention to that. I don't even know what's going on next week. I can't tell you the date of it. And so, but when you, uh, when you are a people outside of the technological world of just, oh, I have a calendar that's going to tell me the date, when you're depending on how you function and form as a people, what that happens is um, really important to shape and form your practices. And so the 13th, um, the 13th day of the 12th month happens to be the eve, the essential remembrance of God's work and deliverance of the Jewish people. It's the eve of Passover, where the people of God remember their greatest deliverance of that time, um, that they have been freed from slavery, that they have been saved, that they have been given a name, that they have been sent out, and that the, that is what their promises are rooted on throughout the entirety of the Hebrew scriptures. And so as you are receiving this um, courier, as you're having this conversation, or as you're hearing this date, that doesn't mean it's not terrifying. That doesn't mean that you don't know what's going to happen. That doesn't mean people aren't going to be lost in the midst, but it would be rooted in the remembrance of the way that God has protected and sustained them. It'd be rooted in the remembrance of what God has done with them through the entirety of God's story of the people of God. And so you might be like, okay, now we got to go see if this date happens, what happens within it. But what we should do is we should be paused at another one of these signposts that says, hey, that's an important timing. That's an important reality of like, okay, this is going to take place on this date, but what does that date mean? What does that conjure up in the people of God who have experienced that deliverance, who have experienced that work, and who then have told their children and grandchildren about that? And so as they are preparing for this remembrance or they're preparing for this um, time, that they would be able to be rooted in realizing like, let's remember who God is and what God has done. Let's face whatever is going to happen now rooted primarily in that, not in fear, not in freaking out. That doesn't mean that there isn't stress. That doesn't mean that there isn't um, things to, to overcome, things to be angsty about, but that it is rooted in that time. And as, as I was preparing for this, as I was looking through this, um, and as I was feeling like this is going to be much more of a pointing to places in Scripture than a fluid like, hey, here's a message <laughs> um, within it, I think it's such an important signpost to cap, cap, on, cap, um, cap this time on is realizing that as this message is being sent out, as this proclamation of death and destruction is being sent out to wipe out the entire people of God, it is being done in a time where they are preparing to remember who God is and what God has seen them through. And so this will push the people of God into what they will be experiencing and seeing through this within it. And so again, it's an opportunity for the reader to be reminded and move forward in what is ahead and rooted in the work and promises of God. Uh, before we wrap up our time, there is one, um, one piece that I wanted to note just for our personal awareness to this text that even kind of goes with maybe our 
lovely idea of trying to figure out all these answers through numbers and dates within it. Sometimes when we hear a story like this, um, we're really, um, instead of seeing Haman as the picture of evil that he is, and how this connects to God's larger story of deliverance and restoration and care for his people, um, we sometimes get really excited when we see biblical leaders defying authority. Um, and so we're like, ha he didn't bow down to like so-and-so, or he didn't do this. How does this help justify my own mission towards my own like personal convictions and things? And any, any opportunity we have to dive into scripture like this, it should always be pointing us back to what is this having the opportunity for us to learn about God and learn about Jesus and be able to be pointed to that. Um, when, we see, when we see a biblical figure defy authority, and I'm not saying there is never a time to do that, not saying there's never a place to that, but we're so hungry, especially in our political discourse right now, to find any opportunity to be like, ha-ha, see, we're right. Like, this is it. This gives us the freedom to do this. But what's, why it's important, then, to look at these signposts throughout these texts is that puts us back to actually the conviction and vision of who God is. And then for us as Christians, who God is revealed into Jesus. And so that should be what we're coming to, to filter through, then what do we do with this text? This just isn't an opportunity for us to be like, okay, I get to take this stand here, but now I'm going to be mad about this person taking this stand there. And so it, it provides us an opportunity to, to check ourselves, to check our motives, to check our things. If we're so excited just to jump up and be like, all right, we want to defy this and throw this down. Um, if it's more about our own uh, political, social, or culture convictions and not actually about the vision, mission, and gospel of Jesus Christ, then it's probably more about us, and we are excited to be given permission to what we want to get permission to do. And so there's a lot of—this um, is not new to our history as a people. Um, it's just very ripe right now of looking for, looking for justification in a way to, to be able to um, actually, in a way, give our own— political, social, cultural convictions, the seal of the, ring, the king's ring, right? We're so hungry for that as a people, which is why when we approach texts like this that seem daunting, um, scary, confusing, it's so important to be like, how does this fit in God's larger story? What is it that is getting us to here within it, and how does that root us in that versus our own fears, our own insecurities uh, that are, we are so bombarded by right now on the news, um, on social media, in our world. And so this should be a reminder of where we root ourselves in. And so one of the ways that we always um, wrap up our time together is with gospel application. And one of the things that we want to do, and we never want y'all to do, is to go out and leave here with, like, here's my list of things to do. Like, this is what I got to go do now to do this. I was, um, I was sitting in the library the other day while the kids were finishing out um, finishing um, up checking out books, and I was reading through some books I got, and someone who made no eye contact with me at all didn't really say anything to me. I had my book open, and they just dropped the track in my book while I was reading, um, and that's not really a way to show the love of Christ to me, by the way, so please don't, don't interrupt my book reading <laughs> with that. Um, and I, I, I grew up in a time and era of evangelicalism where that was, a, that, was a, that was a normative thing, and they weren't already very healthily done. This should not be seen as like a critique or pushback against evangelizing, um, but there are helpful ways or not. But I was so struck when I opened that up, it was literally just a list of things to do. <laughs> and then finally, there was like one sentence at the end about like accepting Jesus as your personal savior. And I was like, oh, that's, yeah, that's a lot to do. And it was like, it was like, 18 points, like, throughout, and I was very overwhelmed by it, um, and so, 
All of that to say, we want to not give you this list of things to do. We want to remind you what God has done and have yourself be rooted with that. And I think two of the things, though, you might say, oh, these are pretty generic. But the reality is, is a lot of gospel reminder is generic. (laughs) It is what we need to continuously be reminded of. And so I think as we look through this story of Esther chapter 3, what it points us back to throughout Scripture, what's it roots us in, it's this invitation to remember what God has done. Um, there's a lot of circumstances that um, we are up against collectively, individually. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going through that I don't know, that maybe people here don't know, um, good and bad and um, in the middle. And in those, there's an opportunity to remember what God has done. That does not dismiss the concerns, the questions, the angst. That does not say, okay, remember what God has done, then everything's all happy. I mean, there's a whole section of scripture of prophets where people know who God is, and they're not happy and satisfied. And so it doesn't mean that there isn't isn't the questions. It doesn't mean there isn't the wondering, but there's still in the midst of that, that those questions, those wonderings and angst have an invitation to be rooted in what God has done. Um, If anything, they can actually prompt those questions because you remember who God is. And so where is God showing up in this? And so as we as we gather throughout the week, as we move on throughout the week, to have this opportunity to remember continuously what God has done. And then root yourself in God's promises. It isn't just about remembering what God has done in the past, but how what God has done in the past and what, how God is what is promised to the people of God to root yourself in that. That doesn't mean you necessarily are going to know the way out. <laughs> that doesn't mean that everything is going to be clear. Like we end this chapter today of like, okay, this is not a pleasant thing. And we're looking for these signposts to be reminded of God's ongoing work and ongoing battle. But as they do that, as these people are coming up against these couriers with this horrifying message, is being provided in an opportunity of them that they are already remembering what God has done and what God has delivered for them and to root yourself in those promises. I know it's much easier said than done. <laughs> it is something, and that is why we gather together to hear this. That's why we gather together to remind one another. You're not going to be able to root yourself, uh, remember what God has done, and root yourself in God's promises if you go through this idea of church and idea of community alone. That's why we gather as a community to hear that and be reminded of that from one another. And so to remember what God has done and root yourself in the promises of God.